0: Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday. Coming up, we are expecting to hear from the current B.C. Premier, John Horgan, talking about, well, any number of things, but you can guarantee he will be asked questions about the leadership Race. So we also know that David Eby is going to be the next premier as the only contender was disqualified. We're actually starting the show talking more about that and finding out exactly what is going to be happening tomorrow when David Eby is declared party leader and in the days ahead. Joining us with that is Richard Zussman, Global BC journalist. Richard, good afternoon to you.
1: Good afternoon, Jill. It has already been a day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talk about moving up the timeline. So we now know David Eby will be declared leader of the B.C. NDP tomorrow. What else do we know?
1: Yeah, so we know that that's going to happen. What we don't know yet is when he's going to be sworn in as premier. So the expectation is that could unfold in November, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Global and the B.C. NDP were set to work on hosting a debate on November 5th. I expect if things all go to plan, the party may still use that venue to host an event for David Eby to celebrate him as the new leader. And then potentially a few days later, when there's a break week here in Victoria, uh, there would be a perfect time to be sworn in as premier down at government house. And I would expect that could happen around November 8th or 9th. It's all speculation at this point. I could be wrong. But based on what we know about the amount of time it takes to do transitions and the time it takes to set up a swearing in, I think that would be an appropriate timeline to ensure is given enough time to get caught up on the work, because the moment he is sworn in, he is BC's premier. So it's going to be funny terminology. Today, he is BC's next premier. Tomorrow, he will be the BC NDP leader and the premier designate. And then he will be sworn in and eventually become BC's premier.
0: Uh, is any of this surprising as far as the timeline, given what happened with the executive meeting uh, meeting for several hours and then announcing the, the uh, disqualification of Anjali Apadurai and and now we're having this announcement today?
1: No, it's not surprising at all. I, I think this is what we anticipated. We knew October 19th was a deadline, uh, and so there was the thought all along that uh, we could only have one candidate after that October 19th deadline, and that's exactly what we have. So the NDP was prepared for this. Uh, they have to amend their uh, rules around the leadership. Uh, to bump up the date. That's the only reason why we had that announcement earlier today around the declaration that David Eby will be leader tomorrow. So it doesn't come as much of a surprise. It was fascinating this morning at the legislature. They had their regular caucus meeting, the NDP did. David Eby is not here. He's in Vancouver, but he beamed in via video link uh, and receives multiple standing ovations from the caucus. The caucus universally supports him. And even from Premier John Horgan, he is looking forward to, you know, packing up the office and moving on and having someone replace him sooner rather than later.
0: And was do you think there was, a, did the party even care, or was there any reason why the timing of this was the announcement this morning, knowing that uh, Anjali Apadurai is having a, a news conference this afternoon?
1: Yeah, nothing to do with any of that. I think it all has to do with the fact that there was this deadline on October 19th that led to a vote by the B.C. executive. That vote led to disqualification. In the party's mind, Anjali Pudurai largely doesn't matter anymore. We don't know what steps she is going to take in terms of an appeal uh, or legal action, but the party is not concerned about any of that. They are confident about the report Elizabeth Cole produced, 23 pages of it, that uh, lays out a number of allegations around cheating within the leadership race, around getting new members. Uh, and because of all of that, the party has moved on. They are ready to name their new leader. And whatever Anjali Apurai says in the media or anywhere else doesn't quite matter to the B C N D P
0: anymore. And well, looking at that report or some of the reasons. I know one of them was the, the lackadaisical report attitude towards the rules mm-hmm. of the campaign. Is that really what did her in, do you think? Or is there more kind of damning evidence in that report?
1: I think that's part of it, Jill. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with the Pitterai, uh since these allegations came forward. You'll remember that, you know, we broke the stories about this in September, that there were even investigations. We broke the stories around the Greens uh, and the NDP membership list. You know we have been investigating and reporting on this for quite a while here and so it's not surprising what we saw in that report but the the details and the volume of it was what was surprising that in essence angelia purderai sent a message to her supporters uh through dogwood through avi lewis uh the former federal candidate for the bc ndp or for the federal ndp here uh, in British Columbia, it, through them, she sent this message that we are going to do whatever it takes to win, and they used lists that they should not have used, they used resources they should not have used, uh, and, and that, it's sort of the volume of those details that was surprising. The lackadaisical part was important, too, that it, it seemed from the NDP's standpoint, the BC NDP, that Anjali Pudurai never took these accusations seriously. She never provided them the answers they were looking for. Yes, she was doing media interviews explaining her position, but the party was not confident that she was telling the truth or taking it seriously.
0: Was this then another attempt, you mentioned Avi Lewis, another attempt by uh, these members that have been attached to in the past the Leap Manifesto trying to get in and take over an already elected NDP government?
1: Absolutely. And this was their greatest opportunity yet. These environmental organizations, they care deeply about their causes and they have tried so many different ways in this province and country to enact change they believe so strongly in. And they saw part of here in an opportunity. There was vulnerability. The NDP had allowed their membership numbers to dwindle, they used resources and A part of the party that's angry, the environmental wing is angry. They're frustrated about LNG, about Site C, about Trans Mountain. They're frustrated about wildfires and heat domes and floods. This was an opportunity, and they took it. And the party, yes, the investigation was thorough, but there was a sense of them being terrified that David Eby could lose. And Angelia Pitterai could become the leader. Would she become the premier? Oh, I don't know. It would have been very hard for her to get the support of her cabinet and her caucus. But they were very close to being able to get control of a government here with some serious ability to influence change. This is exactly what these organizations do, and uh, our institutions like political parties Uh, need to be acutely aware of that and and, you know obviously they have precautions in place like this review like the rules in order to try to prevent uh, fraudulent things as they describe from happening
0: all right richard it has been a busy day and we'll continue thank you so much for taking (laughs) some time with us
1: yeah still lots more fun to have today thanks joe
0: Well, as you may have heard on the news, former Headley frontman Jacob Hogard sentenced to five years in prison.
2: Jacob Hogard was sentenced to five years in prison after being found guilty in June of sexually assaulting an Ottawa woman in a Toronto hotel room in 2016. The judge told the courtroom today that the sentence had to reflect the inherent harmfulness of a manipulative and particularly degrading rape, Jacob Hogarth arrived at the courthouse this morning with his wife, Rebecca, by his side, likely knowing he was going to be sentenced to prison time. The Crown had been asking for a sentence of six to seven years, while the offence said three to four would be more appropriate. In handing down a five-year sentence, Madam Justice Julian Roberts told the court that the offence involved a level of manipulation and planning. The judge said the woman met Hogarth online and agreed to come to a Toronto for sex, but once inside a hotel room at the Thompson Hotel, Hogarth attacked her forcing intercourse. The woman was physically hurt and in the words of the judge, was transformed from an adventurous 23-year-old keen to experience life to distraught and damaged survivor. The judge also told the court that while 38-year-old Hogarth is no longer a rock star, having lost his career as the singer, with the band Headley as a result of these charges. She believes Hogard still poses a risk in the future, given he has not recognized his offending behavior, nor done any work to his admittedly highly manipulative behavior with women.
0: Joining us now to talk more about this case is Sarah Lehman, lawyer and founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks much for having me. What is your take on what we've heard about this and from this case and the five-year sentence?
3: You know, I'm really not surprised to hear that he was sentenced to five years in custody, Um, even on a first offense, uh, something of this nature, considering the circumstances of the offense and of the offender here, um, that sentence seems to be properly in line with the types of sentences handed down.
0: What are the factors? We heard a few of them in that report as far as what was presented in this case. And I know outside of the court, the the Crown Prosecutor commended the women for coming forward. But what particular points of this do you think were, were the, the most important or the key points when it came to that judge coming up with that prison term?
3: Sure. I mean, of course, handing down any type of sentence Judges are guided by uh, legislation as well as case law. And so there are things that they need to consider in terms of both aggravating and mitigating circumstances and apply those to the facts of the case. So here it appears that the judge applied, um, you know, the gravity of the offense as well as, uh, Mr. Hogarth's personal circumstances, uh, in applying uh, the law and
0: in rendering the sentence are there when you're dealing with cases like this which which are so specific and, and and dealing with very very specific events that took place, does a judge look at precedent or d- at other cases and and cite those or do those factor in at all when when figuring out the, the or the um, the appropriate punishment? Oh, absolutely.
3: So the appropriate sentencing range will be referred back to case law. Of course, you're never going to find a case that's completely on point in terms of the offense and the offender. Uh, But you reference those types of cases in order to give yourself a guiding principle as to what would be a fit and appropriate sentence in the circumstances. And so I expect that both defense and Crown would have come to court with uh, numerous cases prepared for the court's consideration, and those would have factored in in terms of how the judge ultimately rendered their sentence.
0: Uh, We know uh, that uh, he is appealing or has brought forward reasons as to to going to an appeal. And there's also conversations taking place as to uh, whether or not he should be released from jail while that appeal is being heard. Uh, It seems to me the the latest on this is that he'll stay uh, behind bars for at least the night when the judge decides. What goes into that decision then as far as whether or not somebody should be released pending an appeal?
3: Yeah, sure. So my understanding is that the paperwork has already been filed for Mr. Hogarth's appeal and that it's going to be heard later on today in the Court of Appeal. So we should have some indication as to what the judge is thinking with respect to whether or not he should be released. But as you pointed out, it's likely he'll be there overnight um, at the very least. It's not unusual for convicted people to be released pending appeal If the court is satisfied that they can craft conditions that would protect the public and ensure that this person is not going to pose any threat while they are out uh, pending their appeal. So that's going to be the primary consideration and it's not going to be an easy one for the court um, given the circumstances of this offense.
0: And I know this is happening in Ontario um, and here we are in BC, but what are we looking at as far as a timeline and when a case, when an appeal is made and, and obviously somebody wants to be out while pending that appeal, but what kind of a timeline are we looking at as far as how long it could take until that appeal is actually heard?
3: Well, I mean, the wheels of justice don't move very swiftly anywhere in the country. Uh, So um, I think that we'll be looking at months, if not years, for this case to be heard before the court of appeal. And then, um, you know, depending on what the outcome is there, we could even see a further appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, before all appeals are exhausted. So this could be going on,
0: like I said, for months or years, and I expect it will be. And when you appeal something, it's not like you can just automatically, you don't like the ruling or you don't like the sentence and you decide you're going to appeal. What's the threshold as far as what a defense attorney or a defense counsel or, or somebody has to do to even have an appeal heard?
3: Yeah, I mean, you have to have legal arguments that are worthy of the court's consideration. Um, So we would expect that defense in this case who's appealing it uh, will be arguing something to the effect of the evidence that was heard, perhaps. Uh, in trial and whether or not that was properly uh, contemplated by the jury by way of their instruction. For example, uh, I don't want to speculate about what's actually in those pleadings, but that could be one potential ground of appeal, that, for example, the jury was improperly instructed. There are other grounds of appeal. I'm also not entirely certain if Mr. Hogarth is only appealing his sentence or if he's appealing the verdict. So that's something that I think will remain to be seen as well
0: down the line, and that could provide us with some further clarification about how things will proceed. Right, and when we've been watching this footage and listening to this footage, it's always uh, they make a point, or he makes a point of uh, having his wife at his side. They're often seen holding hands going to and from, or they have been seen uh, to and from the courthouse. Uh, During this case, uh, they talked about the fact that uh, his lawyer was able to provide, I think it was more than 50 letters from individuals all saying that he had a good character, that he doesn't have a criminal record. How much does that play in? to how the judge looks at this case?
3: Well, certainly his previous good standing and otherwise good character in the community as well as community supports, would be considered to be mitigating circumstances upon sentencing. But that's just one factor amongst many other factors that the judge has to weigh in rendering the sentence. So again, I expect that the judge considered that, but considered it amongst other things.
0: Right. Because even even if you do have even if you had 100 letters from people saying that you have a good character, I mean, bottom line is you've still been found guilty of a very, very serious crime.
3: Exactly. And we'll also uh, have um, a forensic report, I believe, as well before the court that was considered. Um, And so that is another uh, piece of material that would have been considered upon sentencing, in addition to the circumstances of the offense, which the judge, uh, I believe, accepted in its entirety. So whatever the uh, victim testified to, the judge in this case said, uh, that was accepted by the court uh, fully and completely in terms of what happened at
0: the finding of fact. Do you find that cases like this, and and I don't know if there's any evidence of this or if it's more anecdotal, but do you find when cases like this play out like this and we see a five-year jail sentence, uh, when we see that he has to be placed on a sex offender registry for the next 20 years, Mm -hmm. when we see that type of punishment, does it... Encourage other victims to come forward, or what do you think it does as far as sexual assaults in these types of cases?
3: Well, I think that this sends a very, very strong message that sexual violence of this nature will not be tolerated or condoned in our society. Like this is quite a heavy sentence. Again, it's in line with other sentences handed down in cases like these. So it's not groundbreaking in that respect, but I still think it sends a very strong message of deterrence and denunciation to say this kind of conduct won't be tolerated and you will be punished for it.
0: And is it different because we're talking about somebody who uh, people had heard of? People knew who this, uh, many people knew him as a Canadian musician, as as a bit of a celebrity. Does it make it different in that it gets more attention, perhaps? But is there anything else that that kind of brings to it that makes it different? Sure. I
3: mean, I think it does in terms of our popular conception or understanding of these types of cases. I mean, we have seen a string of acquittals when it comes to Um, you know, famous or pseudo-celebrities in Canada. I can think very quickly, you know, of Gian Gomeshi, for instance, or Jake Furtanen most recently. Um, So to see somebody who does enjoy that level of fame, uh, who has been convicted and sentenced, I I think that it does um, send a message, and it's a departure from what we are normally used to seeing uh, in the media when it comes to this kind of thing.
0: All right. Sarah Lehman, as always, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks so much for talking about this today. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Well, there is a new program that is getting underway and it's offering up funding to businesses in the downtown core of Vancouver that have been impacted by the ongoing criminal activity. We're talking about property damage activity that has resulted in the destruction or damage to their storefronts. And joining us to talk more about this funding, who it will be available for and how much businesses can get, uh, Nolan Marshall III, who's the president and CEO of Downtown Van is joining us now to talk more about this, uh, Nolan. Thank you so much for taking some time with the show.
4: Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited that we're able to launch this program today. It's something that we've uh, spent a significant time over the summer researching. It's modeled after a program in Long Beach, California, where they're experiencing similar problems to the ones that we're seeing in our central business district. And it really is a, our effort to double down really on two approaches. One is Uh, working with the new government locally and the new government provincially to really address the long-term causes of the problems that we're seeing in our community. And the other is to provide solutions for those businesses and people in our community that are dealing with uh, sort of the symptoms of those long-term causes. It's really sort of a public health approach where you treat the root causes and the symptoms uh, for what we're seeing in our community these days.
0: So how is the program going to work?
4: So businesses within the downtown Vancouver BIA's catchment are eligible to apply for this funding. Uh, We'll be matching up to 50% of the cost, max $5,000, incurred to repair or restore damages. Also eligible would be things like uh, fixing broken windows, broken doors, broken locks, uh, removing graffiti, but also adding security cameras, uh, anti-graffiti shutters, gates, uh, SEPTED methods, which could be uh, planters that discourage people from uh, engaging in the kinds of activities that many people are seeing in front of their, their, their storefronts. Uh, it's not an it's not an all-encompassing list. Uh, businesses will be able to uh, apply based on how they intend to use the money, and, and we'll be distributing money until resources are exhausted. Uh, we're using our funding uh, for this program, but we hope it can serve as a as a model for other BIAs and that the province would support a program like this, recognizing that because of the pandemic and because of the the emptying out of many of our main streets and and downtowns across uh, the province, we've seen an increase in street disorder. Uh, And so we we hope that while we're investing in this this program today as a pilot, uh, the province and the city will get behind it so that other BIAs and other communities can benefit from something similar.
0: All right. I, I was going to ask where the funding is coming from. So this is coming from, from your group. And do you have a specific amount when you're saying until the funding is exhausted? Is there a, a specific amount in this, uh, this funding for, for businesses yes, allo- to apply for?
4: Yes, we've allocated $150,000 to this program. Uh, and we hope that that uh, will go some of the ways to supporting those businesses that have been uh, oftentimes uh, repeatedly hit by repeat offenders. Uh, It's it's some of the same businesses we're hearing from over and over again in our catchment that are just routinely having uh, windows smashed or graffiti uh, on the side of their walls. Uh, So we're hoping that while we're working on long-term solutions, that this also uh, is a help to those businesses in our community.
0: And when you talked about the uh, addressing this and addressing the issues and the core issues, isn't this being more reactive though? In that, like you say, so many businesses have been hit repeatedly uh, that it's it's dealing with it after the fact, and, and we could potentially see businesses repeatedly applying for this funding.
4: Yeah, and I think it's I think it's okay to do both, right? I think it's okay to be reactive, and that's why I describe it as a as a public health approach when you uh, when you're sick or when the community is going through something, you, you don't want to ignore uh, the symptoms. You don't want to ignore what you're, the damage that you're seeing on a, on a daily basis. But you, you want to do both. You want to address the damage uh, and what businesses are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And you might describe that as reactive. But you also want to address uh, some of the long-term issues, which means figuring out uh, how we do a better job of dealing with repeat offenders from the judicial system. It means... Uh, making sure that we can connect uh, young people who've been disconnected from work, who are becoming these people who are, uh, who are committing a lot of these crimes, how we connect them to meaningful employment so that they're not on the street uh, disconnected from society. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do both. We're trying to be reactive but also uh, recognizing that there are some long-term investments and some long-term programming that are necessary to make sure that we actually solve the problem once and for all.
0: Right. Um, and then looking specifically then at at businesses that, say, need to replace windows. We saw uh, the TD Bank at Abbott and Hastings hit once again, several of the windows broken. But but businesses that, that will be applying for this, and we know that whether it's graffiti or broken windows or things, it, its best case scenario is to replace it and fix it as soon as possible. So what kind of timeline do you anticipate for businesses that are hoping to get funding from this fund to do that?
4: We'll be uh, reviewing the applications on a first-come, 1st first serve basis, but we hope to be able to notify businesses within 14 days of apply.
0: So 14 days, and then do you anticipate it'll be pretty quick as far as getting the, the funding to the business to, to do whatever repairs or whatever it needs to do?
4: We'll make uh, every effort to get those funds out to businesses as quickly as we can.
0: Right. And, and I know you said that there, there's multi parts to this, and this is one part in, in dealing with this, but we also need to be looking at why these repeat to criminals are continuously breaking into places, stealing things, assaulting people. Because some might look at this and think that we've, we've gone into a bit of a strange place or, or have given up a little bit if what we're looking at is simply funding the fixing of damage that we are just now going to anticipate repeatedly continuing?
1: Now,
4: so what we want to be really sensitive to is supporting uh, a lot of those small retailers, and a lot of the ones that we hear from are really small retailers in the downtown core. Uh, what I recognize and what our organization recognizes is that em- employment uh, really is a positive lever in the community for solving some of these issues in the long term. So if we're making it difficult, for those businesses to operate if we're not giving them this kind of support. Uh, it has uh, it has a long-term impact on our ability to connect people in the community uh, to jobs. And, and ultimately, the correlation between high housing costs, lack of access to employment, that's been the consistency across communities across North America when they see street disorder issues. Uh, in Vancouver, they've manifested in property crime, in other cities in north america where they have access to firearms they manifest uh, in much more serious violent crimes but the the consistency is that where you see high housing cost and where you see uh, a disconnection to work and high unemployment rates you see an increase in street disorder uh, and so long term we want to address some of those triggers but in the short term we want to make sure that our small businesses especially retailers and in the service industry coffee shops that have been struggling with some of the uh, broken glass and graffiti uh, to their business, that they stay open because they are the, the types of businesses that if we can invest in skill training, will hire people who need to transition uh, back into work. So it's, uh, the short term isn't disconnected from the long term, but we, we really do want to make sure that we're providing as much support as we can uh, to businesses who've been through uh, an unprecedented two years.
0: Uh, you mentioned that this is modeled on something similar that was done in Long Beach, California. Do you know what kind of a result there was in Long Beach?
4: I think, like uh, like other communities, they're still working on long term. Uh, th- we're not we're not anticipating that this program will prevent people from smashing windows. Right, like that's not the anticipation. Uh, The anticipation is that for those small businesses where paying a deductible of $2,500 or $5,000 for a smashed window could be the difference between uh, inventory or it could be the difference between staying open and deciding to stay in the core, uh, we hope that this makes a difference for them. Uh, But long term, to solve the problem, there are other uh, levers that we hope to pull and other programs that we hope to work on with the new uh, municipal government and with the new provincial government
0: right because i would think that, that while this is be this will be welcome news to a lot of businesses really if you ask them they would prefer if people just stop smashing their windows
4: right yeah it's um it's not an i don't believe it's an either or. i think we can provide support to businesses and we should which is why we're launching this program and we can also work Uh, with the provincial government and the municipal government and the VPD to make sure that we decrease the number of incidents that we're seeing in the community. I think both go hand in hand.
0: All right. Uh, Nolan Marshall III, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this program and what businesses can expect.
4: Thank you for having me.